welcome back to Lifeside Beat. I'm your host, Kevin Wynn. Today, I have the honor of speaking with our guest, Dr. Enoch Kariuki. Enoch is an accomplished industry leader within the biotechnology sector. Most recently, Enoch was CEO at Lango Therapeutics, a company developing novel precision medicines targeting driver mutations in oncology. Lango was acquired by Blueprint Medicines in December. Prior to Lango, Enoch was CFO at Velos Bio, a company developing novel first-in-class cancer therapies targeting ROR1. Velos Bio was acquired by Merck in November of 2020. Prior to Velos Bio, Enoch was Senior Vice President of Corporate Development at Synthorix, where he led the company's IPO and business development processes that concluded with its acquisition by Sanofi in December of 2019. Enoch spent his early career in investing and advisory roles at HIG Capital, Learink, and UBS. He holds an MBA from the Tuck School of Business and PharmD from Texas Southern University. I'm thrilled to invite you into our conversation. So please join me and Dr. Enoch Karayuki on LifeSide Beat. Dr. Enoch Karayuki, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to LifeSide Beat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad and excited to be here. Absolutely. So first things first, I know you had an interesting upbringing overseas. Where did you grow up and what was your dream job as a child? I grew up in Kenya. I was born in a small town called Loitoktok, which sits on the border of Kenya and Tanzania. My parents are not formally educated. Uh, my mom was forced out of school in second grade to take care of her siblings. And my dad did not make it past the fifth grade, if I remember correctly. So not formally educated, but very smart business people. You know, we, we, we owned trucks for a while. We had a beer distribution business, wholesale business. And, and so growing up, I actually wanted to be in business. That, that's what I was passionate about because that's what I grew up around. I, until later, I went to school and I realized I actually had a knack for math and science. And, and that kind of evolved into the career that I have today. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Can you share any stories in your teenage or young adult years that sparked your passion for healthcare? The one that kind of sticks most in my mind was when I was probably somewhere around 10 years old. You know, that's when kind of HIV, it's kind of came into Africa in a pretty big way and it was kind of spreading all over the place. And I still remember one of my aunts, you know, she was probably in her mid-20s or so, ended up contracting HIV. And I literally remember this just vivacious, full of energy, kind of just shriveling away in front of my eyes and in front of the family's eyes and us not really being able to do much for her. You know, that's when I started thinking about healthcare and, and maybe how healthcare could be a tool for helping people, to be honest with you. I just wanted to help my aunt and I didn't know what to do for her. Uh, you know, she ended up passing away, but, but that experience kind of really stuck with me. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that story, but thank you very much for sharing that. It definitely serves as a powerful motivation to build your career in, in healthcare. So to pursue your education further, you moved to the U.S. and studied to become a pharmacist. Can you share your thought process behind pursuing pharmacy? And then later, what sparked your transition away from the pharmacy and into biotechnology? Absolutely. So when I moved to the U.S., and when I finished my high school in, in Kenya, I, I took the SATs in TOEFL and did fairly well on those exams. And so I applied to a number of schools in the U.S. 
uh, mostly because the high school that I went to in Kenya was known for sending uh, you know, graduates from that school uh, you know, to schools in the UK and the US and, and, and Australia and other places. I was fortunate enough to get into a number of you know, really good undergraduate programs. But I kept running into the same problem, right? You know, I got into BU, for example, and, you know, it was like 45000 a year to go to school day, if I remember correctly. Uh, and they gave me what they thought was a very generous scholarship of 30000 a year. But that meant I had to pay, you know, 15000 a year plus living expenses. And, and while my family did well in business in Africa, it wasn't enough to be able to pay that kind of money. Luckily, there was a friend of, my, a, friend of a friend, actually, that went to school, school in Texas called... Texas Southern University, and they had a pretty big focus on international students there. And he mentioned to me that there was an honors program there where they were giving scholarships. And so I ended up applying to that school and I was fortunate enough to get a full scholarship. And that's how I ended up at Texas Southern University, a historically black university down in Houston, Texas. When I got there, remember I've mentioned I grew up around businesses and actually always thought I wanted to be in business. But I actually got really lucky that my roommate was a pharmacy student. He was in his third year at the time, a Nigerian guy. And, you know, I used to talk to him about what he was learning in pharmacy school and why he was doing that. And that kind of actually really got me fascinated by, 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 about, about pharmacy. I have, it also happened that the school I went to had a really good pharmacy program. Between talking to him, be talking, between talking to some family members, I kind of just felt really drawn into pharmacy. And the reason why I thought it made sense is, one, I was pretty good on the math and science side. And the more I learned about pharmacy and understood that it's actually a pretty big business, I was like, maybe this might be an avenue for me to kind of merge those two interests that I've talked to you about, which is kind of growing up around business, but really loving math and science in school. And so I actually ended up changing into pre-pharmacy a few weeks into my undergraduate course. Thanks for sharing that origin story. Afterward, you spent a number of years practicing as a pharmacist. Can you share a little bit about that experience? And then ultimately, uh, what sparked the transition for you to think about an MBA and then ultimately transitioning into, into industry? Absolutely. So, so I worked for CVS, KMAC, used to be CVS out there, all through my pharmacy school program. And it was really good experience because what I was learning in school, I was actually able to practice. Uh, you know, I used to work sometimes in the evenings during the week and some hours during the weekend. So I actually got like a lot of very practical experience about what pharmacy, what being a pharmacist meant and, and what pharmacy was really all about. And then in my third year of pharmacy school, I still remember this. We took this class called the Pharmacoeconomics of the Healthcare Industry. And you can imagine this is a bunch of pharmacy students. Most of them were not interested in it at all. You know, people wanted to learn about medicinal chemistry or uh, pharmacology or other things. But I, I actually really loved that class because it, it kind of brought this aspect of the business of healthcare into what I was learning in pharmacy school. And by the end of the class, I remember talking to my professor and saying, I really like this business stuff about pharmacy. You know, how can I further my knowledge around that? And it, and it was a professor who put me onto the idea of fellowship programs. He said, most big pharma companies have these postdoc fellowship programs that, that might be able to allow you to kind of merge those two interests. And, and I started doing my research ended up finding BMS and, and a few other fellowship programs. I chose to go to BMS because I really like the management team there. I like the way, they, the direction of the company and, and their fellowship program was very unique in that it sat in the R&D organization. So I was a postdoc fellow in the R&D strategy and analytics team. Uh, so we did a lot of projects around, you know, what's the strategy of the company from an R&D perspective? What therapeutic areas do we want to be in? You know, what regions do we want to be in? And I really enjoyed that work. 
Uh, BMS was going through a big strategic change at the time, away from being a very diversified healthcare company into being a very focused biopharma company. So lots of licensing and acquisition work. Uh, you know, thinking about spinning off our nutrition business, selling off our wound care business to private equity. And I really loved that kind of strategic thinking around how you think about a business. One of the people that I worked with was, was a woman called Ellen Labman, who was a group director in the BD group. She had gone to Stanford for her MBA. And, and as I shared with her about what my goals were professionally, she suggested maybe it made sense for me to go to business school. And, and that was you know, part, part of how I ended up at Tech. Very interesting. The fellowship I've heard is, is a fantastic way to get that introduction into, into the industry. And clearly it, it was very in alignment with your goals as well. So you ended up at Tuck and post MBA, you spent a number of years in, in investment banking and private equity, which I think a lot of our MBA classmates can certainly relate to. What were those experiences like being in investment banking and private equity? And how did they prepare you for a career in biotech afterwards? I will tell you, when I went to Tuck, I had a very clear plan in my mind. I was going to go to Tuck, I was going to get my MBA and go back to BMS. Uh, but like most of your MBA students or your fellow MBA students, I got into business school and I was exposed to a whole new world of private equity and investment banking. And, you know, after speaking with a few mentors, the advice I was given was don't be so set on one way. Try something different over the summer. And if you don't like it, you can always go back to you know, BMS or another former company. And so I ended up trying investment banking over the summer. And, and you know, between my summer and, and my full-time time on Wall Street, I loved it. You know, I, I worked harder than I thought was humanly possible. Most investment bankers will, will tell you that's the case. I really enjoyed the work. You know, lots of M&A deals, follow-on offerings, debt offerings. And for a pharmacist, I just loved learning. And that was just like so much learning about doing deals, that, a background that I did not really have. So, you know, really enjoyed my time on Wall Street. And after close to, I think it was four and a half years, I was then recruited to go to the private equity job. And the reason why I was recruited for that job is they were looking for somebody with kind of this mix of science and finance transaction experience. So I joined a private equity firm out of Miami called HIG Capital. It's grown a lot. It's about a $50 billion fund today, investing in all sorts of businesses. Uh, but I was a part of the life sciences investment team there. You know, and, and it was a really interesting job because I felt like in a way I was able to pull all the pieces that I had learned along the way from being a pharmacist at CVS and learning about patient care, from being a banker, from being a strategist, a big farmer to when, you know, when you're looking at a deal and looking to invest in a company, you can have to think about all aspects of it and make sure that all the pieces fit in for it to be a good investment. And that's what I was doing in my job in private equity, you know, so learned a lot about how you go through an investment process, you know, getting approved for a deal through an investment committee. And, and more importantly, once you invest money in a company, how do you work with the management teams of those companies to actually build the value of those companies such that someday you can go IPO, sell that company to somebody. And, and those were really formative years. It's certainly fascinating that you're able to bring all of your different experiences and have really a unique phenotype as an investor, being able to contribute in a number of different ways. After HRG, just fast forwarding now to your first company in industry, a company in San Diego called Synthorix. And at the time you joined, uh, Synthorix was a private preclinical stage startup by all means of the word. Um, so, so what was so special about Synthorix that drew you away from private equity to a very early stage company? 
I'll tell you about the frame of mind I was in when I met Synthorex, and then I'll tell you why Synthorex was a great company for me to join. So after about two years on the investment side, I started sitting on the boards of companies that we had invested in at HIG on behalf of the fund. And, and as I went to board meetings, I realized something. We'd be sitting around the, the board, the board uh, table. The, the management teams of the companies that we invested in, had invested in, were looking to us as a board to provide direction on key strategic questions or key operational questions, right? And my observation was that board members that had had some operating experience, in my opinion, seemed to be better helpful to the management teams, uh, mostly because they, they had lived through some of the challenges that the, the management teams were, 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 were struggling with, uh, or they had networks that could help these management teams. And I found myself thinking that maybe I should get some operational experience. And, and the thinking was, I'd learned so much on the operating side that whether I ended up as an operator later on as an investor, that experience would be very helpful, whatever, no matter what I did down the line. And I actually met Synthorex uh, because I was in San Diego looking for companies to invest in on behalf of HIG. It was a very early stage company, but, but as Jay talked to me about the science, the platform, this you know, synthetic biology E. coli platform, and, and what they were looking to use it for in terms of tuning biologics, studying with cytokines and potentially others down the line, I fell in love with the science. I was like, this is a really interesting platform. Laura Shava had just joined as a CEO, very well-respected person in the industry. And I felt like I could add value. You know, so when I first met Laura, and we talked about it maybe in the context of HIG investing, as I mentioned, it was too early for us. But, but as Laura talked to me about what she was looking to build, I thought I could be helpful to her. And, and she quickly caught on to that. And she said, forget about investing in the company. Why don't you join this company? Let's build it. Uh, because, you know, your business experience is something that can be complementary to my operational experience. And together we can build this company. And so, you know, as you mentioned, when I joined Synthorex, had about 10 employees. We had a bunch of preclinical programs. We hadn't even really nominated a drug candidate yet for our program. But I really thought the science was really cool. I thought Laura was an amazing CEO I could learn from. And I thought I could add value from the business side. And that's how I ended up at Synthorex. Really interesting. It's so cool to hear how that all unfolded. It's clear listening to you speak that Synthorix was on the cutting edge of innovation. So what role does a business-minded professional play in such a technically and scientifically complex organization? That's a great question. It's something that I think most early-stage biotech companies grapple with, right? Because you generally have very smart, passionate scientists that are coming up with some really exciting innovations. But at the end of the day, you need somebody with a business mind to think through how do we turn this exciting science, this exciting innovation into a product or a service that then people want to invest in, that then can actually help patients down the line, that then we can raise more money and do more exciting innovation, right? So you need somebody that can help take that science and, and, and think through that translation into how does this science turn into a business? And that's what I did for Laura and for Synthorex. That's what you know, folks like you and, and, and your fellow MBA students can do. And there's a huge, huge need in the industry for that kind of thinking, because otherwise what you end up with is like really cool science projects that never turn into product, products and services. And if we don't turn them into products and services, we cannot do what eventually we really want to do, which is help patients. Right. That makes sense. And as a follow-on question, were there any key skills or, or talents that were important to succeed in this environment from your perspective? Was it kind of like a build the plane as you fly it situation where you had to be nimble and 
were you able to kind of lean on your expertise in private equity investment banking? So you've seen some of this before. Just curious how that experience was for you. Uh, so we were building the plane, breaking it and putting it back together while flying every day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the nature of what we did at Centaurus. Like, you know, just, just push the boundaries and see how far we can get this thing. And Laura Shova, I should mention, is a cancer survivor. And she reminded us pretty frequently that if we were successful in what we were doing, we were going to be able to help patients. And she told me and the rest of the team every day, there are patients waiting on the other side of this. If these drugs we're coming up with are as powerful as we think they could be, this could benefit patients and they don't have years. We need to get this drug to them as fast as possible, right? And, and that was very motivating for me and, and, the, and the rest of the team members. Uh, to your question about are their experiences uh, from my background that were, were helpful? Absolutely, right? You know, one of the things, as soon as I joined the company, we had to raise more money and we had to decide whether we were going to raise our money through another private financing or taking the company public. I had been a banker, I had done many IPOs, and I was able to help Laura and the board think through that option. We ended up choosing to do an IPO, and I actually led the IPO of Centaurix. I wrote the S1, I selected the bankers, you know, working the lawyers, all, all the process kind of goes into getting an IPO done. You know, we had to think through, we had a very powerful platform. We were a very small team. We were using it in a, only a small subset of what that platform could be used for. How do we generate value uh, from the platform in other ways. And, you know, one of those ways is through strategic partnerships. Uh, and so I kind of put together a BD strategy and, and worked with several uh, pharma companies towards formalizing some partnerships. We had to think through how do we build our team? You know, we were a small team of 10. You know, by the time we sold Centaurix, we were close to 70 employees. How do we make sure we build a culture that, that is consistent with how Laura and I and other members of the management team thought about, you know, a culture of collaboration, innovation, hard work, and kind of really putting the patient first. You know, and these are all things that I kind of I had learned about in business school. I had experience through either sitting on boards of companies at HIG or companies I had worked with uh, as an investment banker. And, and so all that experience came in really handy where Laura was really the operator. And I kind of brought that business thinking in all that we did to make sure we were building a good business at the end of the day. Right. So about a year after the IPO, Synthorix was then acquired for two and a half billion dollars. From an outsider's perspective, this seems like it happened very quickly, but I'm sure there was a lot more to it than just meets the eye. Can you walk us through how that relationship with Sanofi originated and perhaps then how it evolved over time leading up to the eventual acquisition? So I have to say, we were not looking to sell the company. We, we were actually very excited about what we were building and had a long-term vision and plan of how we were going to build the business. Uh, what happened was, uh, I remember I mentioned we had a very powerful platform and we were only applying it in a very small subset of, of what that platform could be used for. So part of my work as the head of BD and strategy for the company was thinking through how can we form partnerships with companies like Sanofi, and, and there were a few other big pharma companies we were talking to, around the platform such that we could then take some of that money to build our pipeline and, and leverage their capabilities to build to continue to build out the platform. And it was really interesting because with Sanofi and, and several other pharma companies, we always started around, let me tell you about our platform, and they were really fascinated by that. And then they said, well, what is the proof that the platform works? And, and we had a very exciting uh, lead program in Thor 707, which was uh, tuned out to for immuno-oncology. And as we showed them the data around that, they got really excited and they say, well, what else do you have? And I'll show them the R15 data. We had an R2 for autoimmune disorders. 
and Sanofi, like most of the pharma companies, as they as they got to know us, as they get to know the company, the platform, the pipeline, would end up in a position of, well, we like the platform, we like your lead program, we like R15, we like R2AI. Maybe we should just do like a broad program, you know, a broad partnership. And every time we did that, it was like, well, that's half my company. You'd have to pay me a lot of money in a partnership for that to make sense for us. Over time, Sanofi and, and several other pharma companies, this is public knowledge, that, that there were a few companies that, that tried to bid for, the, for, for Synthorex, all came to the same conclusion that they liked what they saw so much that rather than partner, they wanted to own it. And, and this was over, you know, about a couple of years where these conversations were going on. Uh, and eventually, you know, Sanofi had a new CEO in Paul Hudson that had joined. Uh, they, they were looking to be a bit more aggressive in kind of building out their pipeline and their platforms. And, and so they were the first company to make us an offer. And then there were several other companies that got in the process. And eventually they, they, they won out the bid. And that's how we ended up selling the company to them for two and a half billion dollars. Wow, that's super exciting to hear. And certainly a, a great outcome for the company. After Synthorix, you became CFO at Velos Bio which was developing a ROAR1 directed antibody drug conjugate or ADC for different cancers. Can you start by explaining what is an ADC and how is it differentiated relative to other modalities being pursued in cancer? So I like to start off by reminding people that uh, when you think of cancer patients, uh, you know, while we're very excited about IO and cell therapy and all these other things, the vast majority of cancer patients still either receive chemo or radiation as first-line therapy. Uh, you know, I've seen numbers as high as 80% plus. Those are, most modalities, you know, they're toxic and, and they have all the side effects that we worry about, but, but they do have some decent data in, in most indications. And so essentially what people have tried to do over many years is find more effective ways of delivering whether it's chemo or radiation to the cancer cells. Because if we can do that more effectively, we can actually drive better responses in a safer manner, right? And so essentially, when you think about an antibody drug conjugate, it's exactly what it is. It's you're putting a payload to and attaching it to an antibody. The antibody provides a more specific selective way of targeting to specific antigens that you target in this case, or one uh, for, for, the, for the drug that we're working with. And essentially by attaching a payload to it, we can get it to the tumor cells in, in a much more specific way that avoids the side effect. And the hypothesis is that if we can do that, if we can deliver whether it's chemo or radiation more specifically to cancer cells, we can drive better responses in a safer way. You know, that, that's been the hypothesis around ADCs for a while. Uh, the challenge has been around finding antibodies that are specific to the cancer cells, but don't affect uh, you know, regular cells in the body, healthy, healthy cells, right? And so what we had at, at Velus was uh, this ROR1 directed antibody that was very exquisite, very targeted to ROR1, which is expressed across multiple tumor cells, tumor types in the body. Once it gets there, it's very quickly internalized and, and releases a payload inside the tumor cells. And so by the time I was connected to Dave, there was some early data that suggested that the company was able to do this, at least in him malignancies. And then I was working with Dave and the management and the rest of the management team to take this approach to, to solid tumors. And that work is now continuing under the ownership of Mark. Understood. Conceptually, uh, an ADC makes a lot of sense given the, the context that uh, the vast majority of patients still receive chemo and, and radiotherapy. Why not try to get it as close in proximity as possible to the tumor. But hearing you describe, you know, the Velos Bio 
business and, and, and story, it sounds like the business model is a bit distinct from Synthorix's. Synthorix was built around, you know, an early stage technology platform from which multiple product candidates could, could potentially arise, right? Whereas Velos Bio was a little bit more of a traditional biotech company that's built around a pipeline of certain assets with, with lead programs, et cetera. Is that, you know, understanding correct? And can you help us understand maybe the differences, not so much in the science, but in the business model between Velos Bio and your previous companies in Thorax? Absolutely. I think, I think the way you're thinking about it is correct. You know, so Synthorix, as I mentioned, was this powerful platform that we could tune cytokines with. You know, we could tune a number of, of biologics with. Uh, there was even potential applications outside of human health, you know, places, animal health and other places where that platform could be taken. Contrary to that, uh, VelosBio was very focused within uh, cancer because the raw one antibody that we were using, there, has, there have been multiple publications that have shown differential levels of ROR1 expression in specific tumor types, right? And so you could think of VelusBio as having a pipeline within an antibody. So the ROR1 antibody uh, that, that we used was the key asset. And essentially what we did is we switched payloads. So our lead uh, asset was using an MMAE payload. This has been used in multiple cancer tumor types before. And the rest of the pipeline, essentially all we did is took that payload off and attached a different payload. Uh, and, and we played with different linkers and different payloads to come up with the right configuration for different tumor types. And so essentially what we were doing is building this pipeline of ADCs all tied to our lead antibody by just using different payloads to attack different tumor types. Understood. Thanks for um, elaborating on that. So it uh, sounds like we're repeating a, a similar story here, um, but one day Merck comes knocking with interest to acquire the company. Specifically, would be curious to hear what did Merck see that was so compelling for them to offer a whopping $2.75 billion for a, a private company, which is rare in, in our space? Absolutely. So they saw a number of things. One, going back to the scientific foundation that most patients, most cancer patients still start treatment with chemo or radiation. Uh, and, and remember that Mark has built this big franchise around Keytruda. Part of what they're thinking is, what do you combine Keytruda with to continue to kind of build its prominence as, as a leading IO product, right? And one of those combinations that they believe is a winning combination is a Keytruda chemo combination. And they had their own internal data that suggested that that could be a winning combination. And, and so they had their own internal work going around thinking through if Keytruda plus chemo is a winning combination, how can we more efficiently deliver chemo such that it makes Keytruda and that, that chemo delivered more specifically a winning combination? And one of the approaches they identified for doing that was ADCs. And so, you know, these big pharma companies have large BD groups kind of just scanning the, 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 the landscape to see what was interesting. And in their work, they came across Velos and, and they reached out to us. Now, around the same time they reached out to us, I, I joined Velos as a CFO of the company that summer and the company had just closed across the financing and they were getting ready to go public. And so my number one job as a CFO of the company was to take the company public. And so by the time Mark learned about us, we were actually, our S1 was filed. We were weeks away from flipping our S1 public and taking the company public. And you know, we, we've done our tests in the water meetings. The deal was spoken for. We were in a very strong position when they approached us because we had the team. Uh, they knew some of our team members before and they knew these were you know, rock solid, great operators. Uh, we had $100 million plus in the bank. 
And they knew from their investor networks that we had an IPO that was ready to go. And so we did not have a lot of time for back and forth. You know, we said, if you're interested, it's a very quick window here because otherwise we're taking the company public. And what really got them over the bump to your point about being able to offer that kind of offer for a private company was the early data we had was astounding. You know, we had in heme malignancies, you would see these patient scans. Patients had been through six, seven lines of therapy, including CAR T, including other cell therapies, and they were still progressing with disease. We'd put them on Velos 101, and most of the time, one, two, three cycles later, they were clear. You know, when you look through the scans, the patients were all cured. You know, small number of patients, but that was enough to really get more comfortable that we had proof of concept around our approach. And now something else that they got really excited around was remember this idea that we had this exquisite antibody, that this wasn't going to be a, a one-hit wonder. You know, we've we, we done it VLS 101. We had a pipeline and we have preclinical data with our pipeline using other payloads to go after other solid, after other tumor types, including solid tumor types. And that really got them excited because while some people might argue that it was a rich valuation for you know, a company at that stage, what they were buying was not only the data we had at that point, but the potential of the platform to go after multiple solid tumor types with different payloads. And again, that was very complementary to their K2 differentials. Right. Merck with the crown jewel asset of Keytruda and building around that certainly makes sense to be interested in this pipeline within the product that, that you and your team were, were building there. And finally here, wanted to transition to your most recent venture, uh, Lingo Therapeutics, where you made the step to CEO. Uh, listeners can probably guess where we're going here. Lingo actually ended up getting acquired as well by a company called Blue, Blueprint Medicine. Um, can you tell us the, the Lango story in particular? Um, would be curious to hear about a number of different things. So first, this is your you know, first time CEO gig. So congratulations on that. Wanted to hear more about that transition to, to CEO and how that might be different. And secondly, from the acquisition perspective, the deal structure was interesting. This wasn't an outright acquisition. This was a deal with cash up front with the potential for significant uh, milestone-based payments uh, in the back end. So I wanted to hear about those things as well. In terms of being a first-time CEO, you know, one of the reasons I got very comfortable with the CEO role at Lengo was that the chairman of the company uh, was somebody I had worked with before, uh, Dave Johnson, who had worked with at Velospire. Uh, he's actually the person who approached me about the CEO job at, at Lengo. So while I was a first-time CEO, I was, I was working with somebody that I have a lot of respect for and I actually consider a mentor. And, and so that, you know, they're comfortable with my ability to be able to execute on the job given I was going to be working with Dave. You know, the C, being CEO is different than being CFO or head of corporate because you kind of have to think about the whole company again. It's almost like being an investor again because I'm thinking about building the team and raising money and the right pipeline programs and the right clinical strategy. And so you kind of have to take this pan approach to how you, you're building the company. And then to me, the key was having a really strong team that I could trust to, to, to execute, uh, which allows me to then focus on the strategic piece and, and, and the raising money piece. Uh, and while it was short-lived, it was actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed being CEO of the company. In terms of the deal structure, so again, at Lengo, we weren't looking to sell the company. We, we had plans of building the company like, like Velos and like Centaurix before. Uh, but again, somebody saw value in what we were doing and they were willing to pay money for it. Uh, the reason the deal was structured with Milestone is that we were very early stage. You know, we, we were just in the process of filing our first IND for our lead program at, at Lengo. And so while we were very excited about the potential of that program uh, in, in CNS, as a CNS penetrant TKI, 
uh, it was a very early stage program. And so we struck a deal where we made enough money as a team and as investors initially, and then we got to participate in the upside if the program works out as well as we think it will in the clinic. Great. So one thing that I've noticed, and this might be, you know, me putting on my hat as a Southern Californian, is that all of your companies to date have been in the San Diego area. What, what's going on in, in the San Diego biotech ecosystem? Can you explain to us the energy, maybe the science or the key personnel that's making it such a thriving ecosystem? Absolutely. So in, in my investment days, I spent a lot of time in Boston and the Bay Area. And so I know those areas well. They do great science. I have nothing but good things to say about them. What attracted me to San Diego is that it's a bit different here. And, and what I mean by that is there is still very good science being done in San Diego, but the environment is very collaborative. Uh, you know, people truly go out of their way to be helpful to each other, whether it's CEOs of companies or investors. And, and given we are not Boston or the Bay Area, we take real great pride in a San Diego company doing well because for a smaller ecosystem, that makes us look really good. Uh, and having grown up in Kenya, you know, the culture around where I grew up in, this culture speaks to who I am. I, I want to do really great work. I want to work really hard, but I want to be around people I enjoy being around. I, I want it to be fun and I want to feel like it's a really collaborative envi- environment uh, in what we're doing. So there's great science, you know, places like UCSD are doing really amazing work. We have really brilliant uh, entrepreneurs here, you know, the Fahims of, 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 of Gossama and Receptors fame. People like Dave Johnson have done Asata and Velos and multiple companies. Uh, and so, you know, really great networks, very, very collaborative environment. And I must add, it's a great place to live. You know, the weather's great. You know, we have beach, you know, there's very healthy lifestyle uh, to being down here. If you have kids, it's a great place for, for families. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of put all that together and it's just been a great place for entrepreneurship in the biotech space and, and getting even more so by the day. Amazing. I love to hear that. The last question I have here for you, Enoch, the goal of LifeSite Beat is, is really to inspire the next generation of business leaders in life science. So curious to hear from you, what message or advice would you give to an early career business-minded professional really looking to make an impact in life science? Absolutely. I will tell you, come to Biotech. I think it's a really exciting space to be in. <laughs> I, I, I'm very biased, of course, because I'm working in. But with, with all seriousness, I feel like we are sitting at what is the beginning of a very exciting time for biotech, right? The pace of innovation is getting just faster and faster, partly because of you know computing power, our understanding of diseases at a genetic level, at a molecular level is getting better and better every day. There's a lot of money that's coming to the space. You know, there's a little bit of a soft patch right now in the public biotech markets. I think this is a cycle we're going through. We're going to be just fine in, in the long term. And so you have kind of this mix of great science, great innovation, lots of capital coming to the space, lots of strategic interest because the big pharma companies and the big medical device companies need to be able to continue to grow. And, and part of how they do that is through partnerships and acquisitions with smaller biotech companies. So that will create a lot of returns and excitement for investors and, and for inter- entrepreneurs like myself. And the opportunity to really have an impact on patient lives, right? Now we think of, uh, this, of, of the approaches like cell therapy. We saw the J&J uh, legend approval last week uh, with their CAR-T approach, we're talking about 90% plus response rates with durations of 80% uh, you know, years after the initial therapy. You know, we think of gene, uh, gene therapy, we're curing patients of diseases that we weren't able to cure a few years ago. Such an exciting time to be in this industry. And, and when I look 10, 20, 30 years out, 
I can't think of any other industry that I'd want to be associated with. And most importantly, for people like you with kind of like a business mind and an interest in science, there's such a huge need to work with scientific entrepreneurs to help translate this exciting science and innovation into products and services that can really help patients. Absolutely. Well, with that, thank you so much, Dr. Enoch Karayuki. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to get your advice and take a sneak peek behind all of these great stories that you have to share with us. Likewise, it's been great speaking with you and uh, really looking forward to staying in touch and to hopefully seeing you in Southern California. Thank you.